I do appreciate the emphasis you have on marriage. You know, in uh, my ministry for over 50 years, I've done basically four different things. I preach to the wicked, I counsel the confused, I bury the dead, and I marry the foolish. And uh, a lot of times, you know, when I have a wedding, I'll uh, say to the couple, I'll marry you, but you've got to come for some pre-marriage counseling. And so they come, and I give them the best advice that I can, and most of them get married anyway. So it's just, it's just one of those things we do. My wife and I have been married for over 50 years, 55 last June, and we've discovered the hardest time for a marriage to survive is the first 50 years. And what happens is once you reach 50 years, your memory begins to go. And it's hard to remember why you were angry. And it makes it a lot smoother after 50 years of marriage. So you follow with me as I read the uh, first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I've done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, and it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Here is, here's the kicker, verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come today to worship you. We come to bow down before you and lay before you our lives. And Lord, as we do that through songs and prayers and giving, through fellowshipping and now through the preaching of your word, may your Holy Spirit be pleased to teach us and guide us in your truth. In whatever area of our lives we need to hear it, we pray this, we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. If you're a student of the Bible, you probably know some things about the prophet Isaiah. You may have read the book some. I hope you've read it a lot, and I'm, I'm delighted that you're going through the whole Bible to get the whole picture. But Isaiah was a prophet. He was a preacher. And during his ministry, he basically had a message of judgment against the people of God. Now, it wasn't all judgment, obviously. There were some bright spots, and there was certainly hope for the future. But in the immediate sense, Isaiah preached at a time where the northern group of Israelites, the, the northern group of Jews that had broken away from the southern group, had been decimated by the Assyrians. That was the year 722 B.C., and he saw over the hill into the future, perhaps he didn't know the exact date, but it was in 586 B.C. that the city of Jerusalem itself was destroyed. And God was showing the people 
that he had this vineyard, which was the nation of Jewish people, and he was going to tear down the walls. He was going to allow the briars and the thorns to grow up. He was going to allow the wild animals to come in because they had not produced the fruit that he desired. And that fruit and the illustration, the analogy, the, the parable was grapes. But instead of producing sweet, luscious grapes that would be used to make wine, they produced sour grapes, bitter grapes, or literally from the Hebrew text, fruit that was spoiled, spoiled fruit. So what was it exactly that God desired? What did he expect from his people? Let me, let me tell you what he expected. He expected them to be a people who would reach out to the nations of the world with the news about God. The Jewish people were established by God through their wanderings through the wilderness into the promised land and then through the monarchy and on into this time now when Isaiah is prophesying that they would be a light to the nations. But instead of a light proclaiming God's justice, God's mercy, God's love, God's grace, they became an inward-focused group of people who were not willing to seek out God's will first, but instead they were seeking their own will first. Notice in these verses that we read that the vineyard itself was constructed by the finest standards. In other words, God said, I established you as a nation like no other. I have blessed you. I perform miracles for you. I have provided for you. I've given you a goal, a challenge. But instead of producing sweet grapes, you produced, it, produced sour fruit. And then when he said, the time is up, you realize this didn't happen in just a few days or a few weeks or even a few months. If you were going to build a vineyard, if you were going to produce grapes to make wine, you would do exactly what's described in this text. It would take at least a year to clean the ground up of all the rocks. It would take at least a year further to plant the choicest of vines and to get them established in their growth. It would take a third year for the first crop to even appear. And so after three long years and there was no sweet grape, God said, enough is enough. Now, it's interesting, though, we didn't read this part of our text, that the bulk of the rest of chapter 5 describes for us what some of the specific sins were that these Jewish people engaged in that brought on the wrath of God. Let's look at that for just a minute. If you have your Bible still open, I'll point out some verse numbers. First of all, in verse 7, he says injustice and unrighteousness. But a Bible scholar named John Oswald was able to point out five specific areas of sin that the people engaged in. If you want to make any notes, these are maybe some five things you might want to write down. Number one was greed. In verses 8, 9, and 10 of chapter 5, they worship the God of more and bigger. Now, let's be honest with ourselves. Sometimes we have desires to attain some goal or maybe to obtain some possession that we've wanted for some time. There's nothing wrong with getting possessions. There, there's nothing wrong with buying things and enjoying things. But you see, they began to think to themselves, if one of these is good, maybe two or three is better. And I've had this one for a little while, but a new one and a better one's coming out on the market, so I need to reach out for them. Their God had become more and excess over and over and over again. They worship the God 
of greed. Look at the second thing that we see in these verses, verses 11 to 17. They were self-indulgent. Their God was a God of pleasure. Now, pleasure in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. I hope that you find pleasure in worshiping God, that you find pleasure in coming to King's Cross Church. But you see, if pleasure becomes the God we worship, if the only thing we live for day by day by day is to seek out something that makes us feel good, we're worshiping the wrong God. I have a friend who lives in another state. In fact, she and her husband are, are friends of ours, and, and we've learned to, to like them and, and enjoy their presence. But, but here is the philosophy she shared with me when I finally retired from the full-time ministry. She said, now, Ron, what you need to do is you need to find something that you enjoy doing and that makes you feel good, and then you need to devote your life to that thing. Isn't that basically our American idea? Let's make ourselves happy. Let's find things that gives us pleasure. Let's, let's do that first so that we can enjoy life to the fullest. And how many times do we think about retirement and we think, well, now, what am I going to do in retirement to make me happy? I had to go into the office. I had to go into my job. I had to do this, and I've worked so many hours, and, and I've worked so many years, and now it's the time for me to enjoy me. And that's one of the emptiest lives you could ever live. But that's what the people of God were doing. Instead of putting God first and God's will first and seeking his pleasure first, they give in to the God of pleasure, of self-indulgence. Here's the third thing we see in the text. It's in verses 18 and 19. Uh, let's just call it, as uh, Oswald called it, cynicism. Now, what is cynicism? You know, I, I find myself becoming more cynical as I get older. I think it's partly by experience we've learned where well, these things work and these things don't work, and somebody comes up with an idea and immediately we say, oh, that's not going to work. We become our own judge, our own little God. We determine the outcome more than letting God determine the outcome. We become cynics because we think, I know what's best. I can make my own judgments. I can do my own thing. And so don't bother me. Let me be my own little demigod. You know, it's really easy to become cynical about church. The people on the outside of the church are often, usually, more cynical than those on the inside of the church. You've heard the old statement, well, you know, uh, if you think there are people in the church who are hypocrites, why don't you come and join us? We can always stand one more. That's really not a good thing to say to somebody who's a bit hypocritical because they've become cynical and they think they know it all. Here's the fourth thing in verses 20 and 21. They experience moral per perversion. They worship the God of relative morality. And that is very popular today in our culture, isn't it? It's very popular for people to think to themselves, what's right for me may not be right for you. What's wrong for you may not be wrong for me. I will determine for myself what's right and what's wrong, and don't you dare judge me. That's one of the worst sins you can commit today, isn't it? You're judging somebody and tell them what they're doing is wrong and they shouldn't be doing it. 
And the reason people are so offended by judgmentalism is because they want to be their own God. Again, it's like, I will decide what's right for me. It doesn't matter to me what the Bible says because, you know, there's so many interpretations of the Bible. And if it has to do with what the Apostle Paul wrote, well, we know the Apostle Paul was against women. We know he made some mistakes in his own life, so why should we listen to him? And so people are always trying to find justification for whatever they want to do to make it right, not to come under anybody's judgmentalism, so they can live their lives, they think, with a clear conscience. And God said it shouldn't be among my people. It shouldn't be that way at all. And then the last thing we see in these verses that tell us what the people were doing in verses 22 through 24 was social injustice. They worshiped the God of convenience. They turned away from truly caring about their neighbors, from truly caring about people in their society. They turned away because it was inconvenient. And after all, they've had the same opportunity as I've had. If I can make it, why can't they make it? Let me ask you a question. Do you really care about the people who live around you, who work around you? People who are acquaintances as well as people you may call friends, do you really care about those people enough to pray for them? To pray for their salvation if they're not saved? To pray about their problems and for their problems? Do you really care enough about those people to invest some of your time and energy and even some money to help care for them? And you see, the Bible teaches us, especially in Jesus' teaching, that we are truly our brother's keeper. And our job as Christians in this world is to be the salt and to be the light, not just enjoying the fellowship of the people at the church, but seeking to help those around us so that we might be light and salt to those who are in the greatest of needs. And so in this chapter, we find this whole panorama of issues that God says to his people, I've been looking for something. I've been expecting something from you, but lo and behold, I can't find it. And so I'm going to close this vineyard down. You know, in 586 B.C., when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar, he tore down the walls of the city. He tore down the buildings of the city. He even tore down the great temple that Solomon had built. And, of course, without that, there'd be no missing uh, Ark of the Covenant. We wouldn't even have Raiders of the Lost Ark. But anyway, you know, you know that story. And so when God looked to this time of having to tear down the vineyard, of having to let all the things come in to destroy the work, what did he have in mind? I believe part of the New Testament revelation and going from the Old Testament is God was preparing the way for the great hope of Jesus Christ. Now, some people may be inclined to see this passage of the destruction of Israel because of their sins against God as a picture of America. I don't think that's what the prophet had in mind. I don't necessarily believe that there's prophecy concerning America in the older New Testaments. But at least we do learn the lesson that those who know God, that those who have had the acquaintance with God, biblical principles should know better and live better than what the ancient Jewish people did. But here's where it really hits the road. In the New Testament, the equivalency of God's people in the Old Testament is not the United States, but it's the church. 
In other words, if God expected that from the Jewish people in the Old Testament under the time of Isaiah, what do you think he expects today from the church? What is the fruit that God is looking for in your life and in my life? There are lots of ways to address that, but let me give you three things I believe God is looking for that God expects in the life of his people, the church of Jesus Christ. Number one, I believe this is the beginning of what God expects from you and me is repentance from our sins. In the third chapter of Matthew, we see Jesus beginning his ministry. We see Jesus having been baptized, having been filled with the Spirit, having gone through the temptations in the wilderness. He begins to preach, and it's recorded in Matthew that Jesus began to preach this message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what he said in Matthew 3. And then he said, bring forth the fruit of repentance. Now, what is he talking about? You see, there are some people who want to call themselves Christians because they believe generally in the Christian philosophy of life, and and they believe in Christmas, and, and they like to celebrate Easter with new clothes and Easter eggs, whatever they are. But Jesus taught us that there can be no true Christian religion unless we first come to the place of repentance. Did you repent when you became saved? Now, the word repent sometimes is used as a fiery preacher word, but let me give you a definition of what it means to repent. To repent means to turn around and go in a different direction. So here it is. I'm walking in this direction, and I repent, so I turn around, and I go in a different direction. You see, when you come to Jesus Christ, when you receive him, when you have this encounter called being born again, being saved, being converted, it means that you're saying, no, I don't want to longer, no longer go in the direction that I've been going in. I realized that was wrong. I realized that was against the will of God. You may not have been a bank robber or a murderer, but you knew that things in your life weren't right. And so you say, God, please forgive me and come into my life and help me to live for you. Repentance. And you see, repentance as a Christian is not just a one-time event. You know, when I became a Christian as a boy, as best I knew at the time, I I repented. But as I grew older and, and certainly went into my teenage years and then young adult years, there are lots of areas of life I didn't know anything about when I got saved. I didn't know anything about girls. And I, I became a teenager, and I began to, to have a girlfriend, and, and one of those girlfriends was uh, the girl who is now my wife. As I like to say often, we had a very strange and wonderful relationship. I was wonderful, she was strange, and we finally got thinking, no, it worked out pretty good. And so, are you repenting? When you realize something in your life is not right, when God points it out to you by His Holy Spirit conviction, this isn't what I want it to be. This is not the way I want you to live. So is God working in your life? And you can say, yes, Lord, I want to bring you the fruit of repentance. I want my life to be constantly changing more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you a second thing that is a fruit that God is looking for. He is looking for you to be filled 
with the Holy Spirit and to live a Spirit-filled life. And we could take a whole series of sermons and Bible studies as to what that exactly means. Let me simply say it this way. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be living in submission to the Spirit's leadership in your life day by day. And you see, the Bible commands us in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Being drunk with wine leads you to be under the influence of the wine. Being filled with the Spirit means being under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And as you live your life under the influence of the Holy Spirit, you may not hear voices. I've heard of some who have heard voices and who aren't schizophrenic, and some have not, most have not. I have not had a, a revelation in a dream, but some have perhaps. But as we read and study the Word of God, guess what happens? The Holy Spirit, the author of Scripture, speaks to us, teaches us, shows us the way that God would have us to walk, and gives us encouragement and gives us light so that we can be strong in the face of our enemies, that is, the demons from hell. And so God is looking for you to be a repenting Christian. And he's looking to you to be daily and moment by moment submissive and yielded to his Holy Spirit so he can use you. And then here's the third fruit that God is looking for. He's looking for you to express in your living day by day the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Notice when it says fruit, and this is from Galatians 5, 21 and 22, it is a singular word. It's not fruits. Many of us have thought that there are nine different fruits of the Spirit. Not so. There's one fruit of the Spirit that displays itself in nine distinctive ways. And these fruits, as we would call them at times, consist of those qualities of life that all of us want that emulate the life of Jesus Christ. There's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And so when you see your life growing in the aspects of the fruit, when you see yourself becoming more and more like Christ, you're producing fruit that's sweet fruit for God. I used to have a, a house. We, we rented a house one time where my wife and I had come uh, from Louisiana. I finished the seminary, uh, the course of study, and we moved into this really nice house. It had a nice backyard. It had a garden spot, and some friends of ours that we met in that new church uh, planted a garden for us. But along one side of that garden, there was a grape arbor. Now, I knew about grapes, Concord grapes. I grew up in a place where we had some grapes. My grandmother's house had grape vines. And I didn't know anything about taking care of them. So there was an old man who lived next door, Mr. Griswold, and he seemed to know everything about gardening. And so I went over one day and said, Mr. Griswold, don't you think it's about time that I, I pruned my grapevines? He said, Mr. Dillon, let me tell you how to do that. I said, okay. He said, you take your pruning shears and you go out to your grapevine and you cut everything off of it that you think needs to be cut off. Okay. Then you go across to the next neighbor on the other side, I forget his name, and you ask him to come and prune your grapevines. And he'll come and he'll cut some more off. 
And then you come back to me and, and, and ask me to help trim your grapevines, and I'll come and I'll cut even more off. And I thought, that seemed like you're going to kill my grapevines. And what he was telling me is the truth about grapevines. You have to prune them severely to make them produce the best grapes. And you know, one of the things we don't like about the Christian life sometimes is God will call us sometimes to prune something from our lives, to cut away something. That may in and of itself be a good thing, but it, it doesn't lead to fruit production. And it could be that in our lives today, there are things that God wants us to prune. God wants us to get rid of. God wants us to say no to so that instead of having this indulgence, this pleasure, this thing that in and of itself is not sinful, so that we might produce more fruit and better fruit. In fact, I think so many of us as Christians are tempted to live a dichotomous life. We, we are tempted to put our lives into two different categories. One category is my Christian life, which consists mostly of going to church and having my prayer time, perhaps, maybe reading Scripture some. And then the second part of my life is the rest of life, what I do at my work, what I do in my pleasure times, what I do in my family times. Oh, I want to give some money to the church, but I want to save enough for me to have what I want. I mean, I want that, this, and I want this, and I want this, and so... I can't give too much to God's work because i got to have this for here. We, we sort of divide ourselves into two categories. That is not bearing fruit for the cause of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then what would happen? All these things, all these other things like food and clothing and housing will be added unto you. So Isaiah would say to his people, if he were speaking in English, if he were speaking in today's culture, he would say something like this. I've got bad news and I've got good news. The bad news is this place is going to be destroyed. But the good news is God is not finished with us yet. Even though some bad stuff is going to happen, some terrible stuff, some painful stuff, some deadly stuff, God is still going to work to bring about his plan. The question is, are you committed to be a part of that plan in your life day by day? Would you bow with me for just a moment? Our Father, we don't always know what you want us to do. But Lord, you reveal to us day by day and experience by experience those things that we really need. And Lord, is there something in my life, is there something in my way of spending money or spending time that displeases you that needs to be pruned away? Show me, oh Lord, guide me, help me, that I will not have to fall under the judgment, that I will not have to take those things and have them pried from my hands because I don't want to give them up. Give me the grace, oh Lord. To follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.